You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Alisaiga antelope is very unique, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and really in need of... What can they teach us? It was the thing when we were talking about this species with Angie, I said I really want to focus on the conservation because their conservation story, I think, is important. I think it's, it's the one takeaway, not only the unique physiology of this animal. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Angie, it's a beautiful day in California. It's gorgeous out. It's just so pretty. Well, happy springtime. I know. Is it still is it is it still 90 degrees there or are you guys cooling off? We have very perfect weather right now. I've been enjoying okay. it every day. Mild for us, mid 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good. Low That's 80s. Good. So it's been fantastic to be outside and looking at nature, listening to, for nature. No, I it's it's so beautiful here. Springs in the air, the birds are out. We were just talking monarch butterflies just flew through us uh, last week migrating north it was yeah it's amazing it's a great time of year oh that's fun you'll send us pictures if they're still around that's cool yeah there was one two days ago it was a, it was a late it was like a week ago last weekend it was it was one of the late ones and landed it was all by itself i felt bad for it but it was you know it, it, it lived let its life cycle that's right it did what it's supposed to do yeah. so angie you picked this week and we're doing the saiga I know, Chris. I have been wanting to do the Saiga since we first started the podcast. So I'm very excited to be sharing it today with everyone. And hopefully you'll fall in love. If you are not familiar with the Saiga, stop what you're doing. and Unless you're driving, yes. keep going. <laughs> but pull up a picture on our show notes or on the good old Google and take a look at this guy. Or if you really, really, really want to have some fun and you don't know what a saiga looks like, see if our description <laughs> does oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll it's, see. It's an antelope, though, so I, we'll, yeah. we'll start off with that. But it, uh, the saiga antelope is very unique, uh, if, as far as I'm concerned, and really in need of spreading the conservation message. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely in need of our help and in need of our listeners' help. And it's just a really fun trick where 
if you show your friends and family this animal, they're going to think that you are pulling up a picture from a Star Wars mm-hmm. creature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's what, yeah, when I read that description, I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, you could totally see it. And maybe that's what gave them the inspiration because these things are just so unique looking. Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's face, basically, is what Chris and I are focusing. Should we just dive right into it or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a couple announcements before we dive into it. So, you know, a couple things. Oh, I can't wait. I know, Chris. I know, I know. Okay, We're getting okay, there. Okay, Give okay, me 30 okay. seconds. We, we got we to gotta take care of some of this. So you, How about 15 seconds? 15 seconds. 15 okay. seconds. Okay. For all the listeners, please share this episode or your favorite episode on social media. We're going to keep asking that. We're growing. We're seeing growth. Like we're seeing really great growth right now in the, in the podcast and we appreciate it. We have our moms. Yeah, moms are hooked our back Our siblings. Yeah. I made my children subscribe. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> they don't have any. Don't, just kidding. They don't have any devices No, no, yet, no, but. no. But, you know, we're. I mean, it's just all around the world, you know, listeners everywhere. Thank you. You know, just keep doing it. Keep spreading the conservation message and we're going to keep keep growing. We're going to keep growing. And then just really quickly, Angie. And keep sending us your yes, recommendations too, please. Please do. please do. There's been a ton. So we've got a backlist, but that's great. It gives us a lot of good ideas and uh, we'll get to them. We definitely will get to them. And for the record, nobody recommended the, or nobody asked for the no. Saiga. That's all me. It, and very true. <laughs> Y'all think, you'll thank you me did, later. actually. <laughs> the very beginning, you said you wanted to do this one. I can't believe it's taken us this long. Mm-hmm. And then just really quick, Angie, I have to give a shout out to my friend Bashir. And he has a new baby. And do you know the baby's name? Did you guess? The best name in the world? Chris. Yes, Christopher. Aww. <laughs> so, you gave so me I a hint be... with the best name in the world. I would. I, I was going to say Angie, but I don't. Oh, uh, yeah. I it's a boy. It wasn't the it's case. a boy. Yeah, it's okay. a boy. Mangy? So, yeah, Mangy. Mangy. So I'm dedicating this episode to him and his new baby. And he's just been really great, you know, really supporting Congratulations. me. Congratulations. Is this his first? Yes. First baby. Oh, yeah. that's even... Yeah, wow, world just got changed. Oh, For the better. yes, I saw how tired they were. They were exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing. Nobody can prepare you no. for that little bundle of joy no. and how much or how little yeah. sleep it will bring you. Yeah, and he told me this, and, and I've heard this before. It's, it's a very wise saying, and it's when one door closes, another one opens, because we were talking about life and you know things happen, and, and it's just a great, great, great human being soul so i want to dedicate dedicate it to bashir my one of my new friends here in california it's been really really great guy um so yeah angie i think we should just get into the saiga and and talk about this antelope that's critically endangered so it's got your favorite angie it's got hoof and horns right not antlers but horns yes 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 definitely an ungulate my favorite group of animals. It falls into the category of having hoofs and horns, so I automatically love it. And this one is got a face that not only yes. a mother could love, but a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a cousin, because its face is mm-hmm. darling and cartoonish and something that Luke Skywalker would find if he walked into a cantina in Star Wars, because it's just very unique with its giant gelatinous yes, nose. Yes, yes. And I even heard of another one was mm-hmm. it was uh, like out of a Dr. Seuss book with that nose. Oh, very good. Sure. Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And how do we describe it for the listeners? It's, it's like an elephant trunk that's cut off like a third of the way down almost. 
You know, like at the yeah, top of the trunk. Yeah, it doesn't overhang that. It overhangs, but not, it I does. mean, not that long. Uh, no, no, Yeah, no, no, it no, overhangs no. Its, its mouth. Yes. For sure. And then like you, you know, you'd cut the trunk off and that's where it ends and that's the end of its nostrils, right? But its nostrils also, it's like Flare. double. Like it looks, yeah. each, no, each nostril looks bloated and enlarged. Yeah. And then pointing downwards. Right. It's bizarre. It is the, one of the most bizarre looking mammals on earth, I think. With that nose. It is, it is crazy bizarre. It's just cute though. I mean, but it's, it's like squishy and bloated and, and yeah, I don't know how I, we're not doing it justice at all. No, no, but I mean, you know, and, and, and I think once we get to the physiology, it will make, it will make sense because they're calling this sure. an ice age relic, you know, so that nose has a specific purpose. Oh yeah. So maybe, sure. Maybe something from the movie like ice age-ish yeah. kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They had them in the mm-hmm. Ice Age. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they did. I'm pretty sure they had the the side. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's just the nose is. I haven't watched it. I'm looking forward to watching that series. My my boys haven't. Oh seen really? It yet, so. Xander and Xander's getting there no. at the right age where he can he can he can watch it. But it's just yeah, the nose is what defines it. I mean, totally defines it. And this thing is not very big. You know, it's about a, a German Shepherd lab, or or I heard sheep. The size of it, you know. Yeah, large sheep size. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're talking two and, a, and it stands two and a half feet at the shoulder, weighs up to about 110 pounds, you know, 50 kilograms or 60 centimeters at the shoulder. So yeah, not very tall at all. No, and I mean, if you think of a normal antelope, that you maybe think of like in Africa. I mean, that's pretty much what its body style looks like minus the face. Yeah, the face is so unique. It's so unique. <laughs> and it, it's yeah, and it has long thin legs and a robust body. Mm-hmm. And their coloration is really cool, Chris, too, because it's it has a shorter coat that's like yellow tannish on the back and neck with a paler underside, almost like you'd think of something like a gazelle. But in the winter, the coat becomes thicker and longer and it becomes more like a dull gray, whitish, light brown, tannish in color. And then it has a cute little short tail, of course. Too, yeah. That makes yeah. me. Yeah. Got to love that. Yeah. And the, and the males have beautiful spiral horns, but the females, no horns. Correct. Right. Correct. Yep. And the horns are uh, really interesting. Somebody almost described them as, instead of just like straight black, like you would see in a lot of antelope, they're almost like beige or translucent in mm-hmm, color mm-hmm. yeah you, grayish you. translucent well chris it should be noted too that on the horn there's like rings every few centimeters or so and that the older the male is the more rings he's gonna have yeah. like a tree. yeah 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 and they, they can grow up to 10 inches long or 25 centimeters so they're, mm-hmm. so they're pretty big and they're straight for the most part straight up yeah 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 now you want to stay tuned because really you know it's the thing when we were talking about this species with angie i said i really want to focus on the conservation because their conservation story i think is important i think it's it's the one takeaway not only the unique physiology of this animal but also just their story just highlights of what so many species are facing right now so you know stick with us and towards the end we're going to kind of talk about it because you know they've been on the brink a couple times i mean completely wiped out Yes, their story reads like a crazy novel as far as the highs and the lows for this this species. And right now we're at a low and 
it's our job and the job of scientists to and conservationists to make sure they their population grows again because we know they can do it. We've seen the pattern, and we'll share that pattern with you a little bit in the, throughout the podcast. Right. Right. Now, these are from Asia, right? Central Asia, trio of countries, Southern Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. So that's one species. Mm -hmm. And then the other species is a Mongolia. So mm -hmm. isolated pockets, but again, these are migrating animals, so they need large areas. And as these countries become more urban, it's getting tougher and tougher. You know, they're losing their habitat. Right. I mean, their herds can be found in grassy plains. Uh, as long as there's not too much rugged terrain in hills, they're not like mountain goats or anything like that. Uh, but they're described to live in temperate grasslands, savannas, shrublands, and even into somewhat desert type area, depending on what season it is. Right, right. And and it, it's a good segue into why I care about them because... You know, people don't think or understand, and I know we talked about, like, say, just the cassowary a couple weeks ago. We talked about how critical they were to, to seed dispersal. We've done that in fruit bats. We've done this in, in a bunch of other species. So, so Angie, grazers are really critical to the environment. A couple years ago, I read an article talking about bison in North America, okay? And we just mm -hmm. talked last week with Corbin talking about zoos and how zoos save the bison from 600 to now we're at 20,000 in the wild. Used to be millions. Yes, that's such an incredible yeah. story. I didn't yeah. just time out really quick. I had no idea that the American bison yeah. number was yeah, that low. They were low. done. They were done. I knew that their populate their populations were down from the millions that of course were across our plains here in the US. I didn't and I knew they were in trouble years ago. I just didn't realize Yeah. That yeah. I mean low. it just it Kudos, yeah, North America. <laughs> but think about it. You had those millions of buffalo <laughs> grazing across the plains. And so not only are they munching on grass, which helps with regrowth, then they, you know, their feces acts as fertilizer, then their microbes in their feces helps nutrients in the soil. So they actually, you know, helped maintain these plains. Now, today, most of it's farms and there's very few, you know, unless you get into the Dakotas or Montana or Wyoming, you don't have a lot of this plains left that used to be there. But what they did find is that grazing cattle, if they come out and graze these lands, they kind of restore the grasslands. Okay. And that's what the bison did. So when you have the, the saiga antelope in Central mm -hmm. Asia, which Central Asia is just an ocean of grass. And I know we've talked about this before, where it's just grasslands from one coast to the next, practically. It's just huge. And so these antelope are critical to maintaining healthy grass. If they go away, and we're seeing this in other regions of the world, it's a, a, a phenomenon called desertification. So the plants die off and now all of a sudden you have a great desert. So these species are doing things that we can't even imagine, you know, until they're gone. Then we see the, the catastrophic effect. So that's why I care. I think they're, they're, they're critical to that part of the world. They're critical to maintaining the biodiversity there of grasses, you know, not just other wildlife. Yes, Chris, absolutely. And like you said, here in North America with a bison, which is one of our American icons, similarly, the saiga antelope has part of the culture in Asia and a lot of these different countries because it's been traditionally hunted and used for its horn, meat, and skin to help mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people prosper throughout the ages. 
And so a lot of uh, civilization depended on them for a very, very long time. And of course, nowadays, that's not the case as much. Uh, they're still sometimes used for meat. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, their horn is often Medicine, uh, yeah. traded for the goofy idea that it has some medicinal value and things no, like no, that. No, 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 um, no, yeah. But overall, mm. as we'll talk about when we get to conservation, there are being some protections uh, definitely put into place. And with their with this bipolar dynamic history that they've had in the last two hundred years or so of high populations and low populations, and we'll, we're going to explain all that here as we dive deeper in the podcast. But a lot of groups in the governments have started to realize that they want to help save these guys and figure out what's going on with them and uh, why they keep dying off. So I guess that's my reason why I care. And Chris, hopefully the listeners are going to stick with us because throughout the podcast, we're also going to discuss how saigas are a really interesting model for climate change, similar to the pica that we talked about about a month or so back, because that's another reason why I care. Uh, besides their gorgeously charming, yeah, cute yeah. Star Wars-like they face, are, they, are. Uh, <laughs> they uh, from a from a model perspective. They really have set the tone for showing us, unfortunately, what drastic swings in climatic weather can do to large, humongous, hundreds of thousands of populations of a single species. So I think that that's, and that's obviously what you want to talk about too. <laughs> so I know it is. It's such a critical story to tell, I think, you know, it just oh, really yeah. is. I mean, you've got uh, so many species and it's, this is why scientists are up in, up in arms. And this is why scientists are screaming from the top of the hills that, hey, we're watching this happen. So when politicians say, oh, and they, they cover their ears and they don't want to hear it, or they go on that, oh, what this, nah, I'm going to be careful. But last week here in the United States, we had one of our representatives on there showing pictures from Star Wars, talking about how climate change is bunk. Like seriously, seriously. Like it's 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 got to be a serious discussion because here's a species. Yes, we have to, well, I mean, it, yeah, I think the biggest things we have to start getting uh, scientists or people that at least understand um, science in the political arena playing yeah. field. Yeah, it's critical. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. And so you're right. This is a species. And then earlier when you were saying that their horns are used for medicine, again, I was just like I shake my head because we go we go back to the pangolin. We go back to rhino horn and we look at the amino acid content, the chemical structure. It's nothing but fingernails and hair. So save up your fingernails, ship them to China, grind them up and say, here's some medicine. I mean, and make a million bucks. I don't know. But there's nothing there. There's no scientific evidence anywhere on earth that keratin heals you. Placebo effect. That's what it is. Anyways. All right, because <laughs> we're going to get out our soapboxes because you know, the passion we have for this. Get I it know. out, buddy. Get it out. I oh, feel it's you. Just, no, it's I so know. frustrating, um, Angie. It's so frustrating because you see this, studying this species, and I read their story, and I just wanted to cry because it's just, wake up, Earth. Wake up. Like, seriously. Mm -hmm. This is a beautiful species that we're, again, like the vaquita. The vaquita's gone now. And now here's another species that's unique and beautiful and it, it, it's probably not going to survive. I don't know. Anyways. Okay. Let's get some more. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, 
<laughs> I'll save this for the conservation news or something. So <laughs> two species of Saiga, Angie. So the Saiga Tatarika, Tatarika. Okay, so this is the, the trio of countries, Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Then the ones in Mongolia is the Saiga Tatarika Mongolika. So, yeah, I did that, or did that right. Excellent. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> down in, uh, that sounds down like Mexico a good drink. Costa Rica Tatarika Mongolika. <laughs> Central it? Asia. So... <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get through the evolution really quick, Angie. There not there wasn't a no. lot, and again, that conservation I think is really the take home message today, uh, as well as how beautiful and amazing these animals are. But again, like I said in the beginning, they're they're calling it a relic from the ice age, and it's just one of the these species that's just still hanging on, and they evolved to survive in really frigid climates, like really harsh harsh environments. Go, go back to the reindeer. You know, we talk about a lot of Arctic species. So the, the central plains of, of Asia is just horrible, cold snow, not a lot of food. It's a rough existence. What I love about this, Angie, is, is I can't, I was imagining the Saiga walking next to woolly mammoths and they did, you know, they, right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, because you think the mammoths, they talk about, you know, smashing down snow. So maybe the, the saiga could come up behind them and, and nibble some grass and stuff. You know, and I was thinking of my favorite trio of animals that uh, from the Ice Age. So mammoths, obviously, one. Saiga sure. is now number two. Yay! It's got a bump. I love it. And I think I'll put woolly rhino three. They're pretty cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. So what we do know, scientists do know, saiga are relatively young species. So they've really, they've only found fossils dating back a million years. Still a long time, but compared to some of the species we've covered, it's it's pretty short uh, time frame. Now, they have, they have found pretty much saiga range from Central Asia to Britain, but they think they might have migrated into Alaska when you had that land bridge, but they, they haven't found any evidence there yet so you know i'll save the other antelope species to kind of get more in depth but i did look for the largest antelope which i think you might have worked with so which one is that it's got like a a trio spiral up its horns or three oh the kudo no no this one's bigger giant eland yep yeah yeah so six yeah, feet at the shoulder. You can't stump me on my antelope. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's an antelope. I'm six... a little slow. It's late at night. But... I know, I know. Six feet at the shoulder or 180 centimeters. It's, like, it's a horse. Mm-hmm. It's like a big horse. Yes. Not a huge horse, I've but seen, a bigger horse. I've, see, I've seen one in uh, Tanzania. Oh, lucky. Weighs up to 2,200 pounds, 1,000 kilograms. That is. I don't think my boy was that big, but. <laughs> uh, that is huge, 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 huge. So that's the largest antelope. That's not a, that's not a cow. That's an antelope. You know, correct. Twenty two hundred yeah. pounds. Mm-hmm. Holy heck! That's huge. Still not as impressive as the elephant bird, though, right? <laughs> Sixteen hundred <laughs> pound chicken. <laughs> could you imagine that? Could that elephant? Could that elephant bird fly? No, no, no. Oh, okay, it's, I was going to say that's scary. <laughs> no, I think the. I think we. This is this is going back. The okay. This is a year ago. The largest flight bird was from where? Remember last year we talked about it where I was freezing my rear off. New Zealand? It was the, yeah, it was the, the Harst Eagle. 
was like huge. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was like the biggest bird to ever fly besides dinosaurs or anything sure. like that. But it, yeah, it was huge, huge. Went extinct like seven, 800 years ago. So Angie, the saiga lives about 10 to 12 years. Mm-hmm. Now we can talk a little bit about that nose. Yeah, a little bit. Up. We got to talk a lot about that nose. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'll just lead it and then you you jump in. The nose is so important because think of it like this. They're in the central plains of Asia. It's minus 80 degrees and they're breathing. Okay. Air goes to the lungs. If we breathe that, we, I don't know. I think we die. I don't know. I don't even know. Minus 80. I couldn't even imagine. I would die instantly. Well, when I was in Chicago, Chris, they would have warnings at, uh, this is minus 10 Fahrenheit. Uh, feels like maybe colder than that. They would warn us not to go outside. Like, do yeah. not go outside unless you have to. And which my keeper friends and I all laughed yeah. at. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah we have. We to. were out. Of course, we were outside. We minimized it, and of course, yeah. we made sure we um, had all of our protective gear on. And but yes, of course, and the winter hardy animals are just loving it. But yeah, no, it's. Uh, uh, it would hurt sometimes when, we, when you would breathe in that cold air, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can only imagine. So, so that nose is really designed to help warm up the air as it gets into the lungs. Okay? So, you know, they, they've got a really a lot of glands and mucus tracts in there and mucus membranes that help warm the air as it comes in. Now, did you read what uh, – I thought this was fascinating, the, that their nose or nostril and, and – all their physiology is similar to what animal, mammal. Did you read that? Oh, interesting. I don't know. Okay. It was a whale. Huh. Closer to a whale. So as a whale breathes in, yeah. it warms up the air. Yeah. And as I it mean, gets into his lungs. I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, thought that was crazy. Was they're like, not wow, related on know? the evolutionary tree until way, 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 way back. But there it is, Chris. We brought it up before that convergent evolution, right? Two species far away on a tree. Having yeah, having similar physiology due to a necessity, but I was also reading that they can also that they might also be traveling through semi-arid or desert-like area, which of course gets hot. And so, on the flip side, that nose, that large, vol, you know, voluptuous, uh, squishy nose, will also then cool down the extremely hot air before it gets to the lungs. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. can work both ways. Yeah. 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 That's what I read. It's, it's, it's an amazing appendage. I mean, really a, an amazing adaptation to the ice age. And then, you know, also it serves purposes in the warmer times of year, like just crazy. It's a crazy adaptation. And yeah, Chris, I couldn't really find anything either. If they did the Fleming behavior, Fleming behavior where they flip their upper lip, up towards her nose. I don't even know if this guy could do that because no. his nose is in no, the way. No, no. <laughs> I don't think they could. <laughs> I don't think he could. It's too big. Way too big. Way too big. Now, what they eat, you know, it's if you think about it, grasses, we talked about that, some herbs, uh, low shrubs, and then also lichen, you know, which is common mm-hmm. on those uh, in the permafrost, things like that. And scientists do know they, they graze over 100 different species of plants, so different, you know, again, you know, the importance of spreading seeds and helping fertilize the soil, things like that. They, they just have a critical ecolog- ecological niche because there, you know, isn't 
other species covering. I mean, the, those grasslands are so huge, Angie. They're so huge. It take you know take us well, forever yeah. across it. It's so huge. Well, and I think with their diet being herbivores eating grass or shrubs or like you said, they're not too picky depending on what season it is. Um, sagebrush, fobs, saltworts, but yeah, Chris, and these guys are known for their extensive migrations across the steppes that allow them to find better food and of course, better weather depending on the season. And with covering all that territory, as you mentioned, that is more fertilizer and more seed dispersal and all of that for miles upon miles upon miles. And But during the migration season, they'll migrate in tens of thousands Insane. of animals. Insane. All traveling together. In fact, yeah, in fact, researchers and uh, photographers have call it one of the most spectacular migrations in the world. Yeah, I know, I know. So we got to put that on our bucket list, right? We've got the wildebeest in Tanzania and then now now the, on the Saiga in Central Asia. And Chris, I also want to point out too that, of course, as a migrating animal, and I don't know how much we've really, really mm-hmm. covered this on the pod, but we're going to cover it right now. Uh, but Chris, unfortunately, there's starting to be some border fences near Russia, China, and Mongolia that are blocking them from doing their natural migration. And along with a lot of their other conservation issues we're going to touch on, some of the saiga are starving to death because they can't get to the grasslands that they need to get to or the better weather. And Chris, these border fences, of course, unless you've been living in a cave, I'm sure you're very aware that uh, they are a hot topic here in the United States as our current administration thinks it's a good idea to put more and more and more of these up in the, uh, on the border between the United States and Mexico. And it's going to have a yeah, huge impact on wildlife, right? I mean, just huge. Oh, yes. I've been reading article after article. There's like a butterfly sanctuary in one of them. I mean, the researchers have already shown that this border fence could impact several mammals and even reptiles that are in the Southwest of the United States. And then of course, into Mexico as well. And so, I mean, it's just, Mm. we got to think about the animals and, and especially for animals that migrate, my goodness. I mean, that's, that's, that's real tough, right? How, How do you, you know, do you build a corridor? Do you like open up the gate once in a while? I mean, I don't have, I, I never have claimed to have all the answers. I have a, most or a few, at least in my house. Yeah. Ask my husband. Yes. Just kidding. No, it's <laughs> Just true kidding. though. And I mean, uh, even in Africa, in these wild game parks, you know, they put these fences up. Yeah. Well, it's definitely the fen- the fences have been a big part of the elephant human yeah. conflict for yeah. sure, right? Because um, they also maybe not as necessarily a hugely migrate migratory animal, but they just need a lot. They need to cover yeah, a lot of distance, space, right? Of space. And they're really intelligent. Yeah. They search for food. So, so yeah, it's. Uh, it's, you know, it's, yeah, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I definitely know that uh, these poor saigas are, you know, going up against that as these migrating herbivores and climate change they're going up against, which we're going to talk a lot about. It's interesting talking, you know, the, mig- the migratory stuff, because we really, you're right, we haven't really addressed it in the conservation issues facing it. So that, that was really good. 
just to sum up the nutrition, it's interesting. In the summer months, obviously, when it's hot, they feed in the mornings and evenings, rest during the day. This, I thought, was pretty cool. Newborn saigas begin to graze four to eight days old. That's it. And they're fully weaned at four months old. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. They start eating adult food that early in their life. That is nuts. So, Well, you want to know some fun physiology about that fat, Chris? Yeah, okay. Saigas, the calves, when they're born, they're very large and well-developed. They are the lar- They have the largest proportional birth weight hmm. of any other wild ungulate. Huh. So they're born big so mm-hmm. they can run quick. Yeah. yeah. And they can outrun a predator in just a few days. Yeah, that's what I read. Yeah. They're just so fast. So fast. And of course, just like a lot of antelopes or ungulates, their, uh, their birth time when they're born is also the peak time for the lush grass before the summer heat really dries up all the vegetation, which that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, is it helps the mom make yeah, you know, it's a helps the mom make more yeah. milk and helps them yeah helps them. Get well, that's why you know, and so, I would teach it in my repro classes all the time to my students. I would be like, when is the best time of year to have a baby if you're an animal in the wild? You know, spring. Duh. Why are the birds are nesting right now and raising their young because there's there's lush grasses, flowers, more bugs, everything's in bloom. You know, it depends on what you eat. But then for strategy for an herbivore, that's when you want your babies because lactation is an incredible drain on the on the female system, mammalian system. So you need nutrients for that. Uh, predators, I mean, it, it depends on the predator. They they tend to have babies year round, but you know, I think they're more successful when there's more calves that they can hunt and things like that. So, yeah, it's just crazy. It, it's yeah. Well, I should I should have ta- I should have <laughs> taken note to that because having having Zachary in late August and so uh, being in August, heavily pregnant, Florida. I'm using that term loosely. In Ju- June, July, and August uh, in Florida is uh, not for the faint-hearted. You were miserable. You. you were miserable. <laughs> I remember. Oh, no, was I so was miserable. a good pregnant lady, but yeah, but yeah. Uh, you just don't want to spend too much time outside. So uh-uh. I should have taken uh-uh. a taken a lesson from the Saiga and popped that baby out in the spring. In the spring, right? in spring. Well, okay. So let's let's talk about behavior. What are some of the other stuff that they do? Besides just me wanting to look at them and watch yeah. YouTube videos of them I know, all day. they're pretty cool. <laughs> they're so sweet. Well, during the day, saigas do a lot of grazing, of course, and visiting water holes. And before they rest each night, I find this very charming. Before they rest each night, they will dig small circular depressions in the soil <laughs> to serve as a like a little makeshift oh, cool. bed for them. So they're nice and com- they're nice and comfortable, which I can appreciate mm-hmm. that. I like to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think what also needs to be noted in this podcast, because you know me and I love courtship behavior, is talking a little bit about the males and what the male, some of his displays for the female. So I think with deer or antelope before, we've talked about how males during the breeding season go into rut. Have we um, about that I think before? a little bit. What that yeah, is? Yeah, we R-U-T talked a little bit about reindeer, but yeah, that's something we haven't addressed a lot of. Yeah. Oh, with reindeer. That's right. Okay. 
Yeah. And so for the listeners that haven't checked out the podcast on reindeer, please do. I think I probably yes. go into an epic <laughs> antler uh, discussion. Yeah. <laughs> harangue about yes. horns and antlers. I uh, yeah. I was obsessed with antlers uh, and watching them grow and change. And I'm mm. taking photos of them every week and documenting it. But anyways, and so for saigas, the breeding period or their rut lasts from late November to December, like in the Mongolia area, for example. And during this time, during a male's rut, he's pretty much just going to have one thing on his mind, and it's going to be finding Little Miss Saiga. And he'll even go off food. And during this breeding season, while the male's in rut, the Saigas are going to con- congregate into smaller groups consisting of five to ten females and just one male. And males are very, very protective over their females at this time. And often fights will break out between the two males, which is when the horns are used. And fortunately, it's not uncommon for fight for injuries from a fight to or from a battle to actually kill another male. And but what's also super fascinating, and I saw this when I worked. I, I was not lucky enough to work with saigas, but uh, working with uh, male deer that and during the rutting season, interestingly enough, they go off food like almost in, in its entirety and they'll spend most of their stored energy fighting and breeding. That's the only thing they have on their mind. Fighting and breed, fight, breed, repeat, fight, breed, repeat. <laughs> and a male will, a male will breed several females if possible during the breeding season. And so, yeah, there's not much time to eat or drink during this fight, breed, repeat type of thought process. And so during that time, a male will become towards the end of the breeding season, he's going to become kind of weak. And so I think that's where, yeah, if he's fighting during that time, he might, you know, not, you know, fare as well. Uh, and I know I'm not, I don't, I couldn't find any data on the saiga, but I know in the deer species I worked with, I mean, they would definitely lose weight. And as a keeper, we'd be very concerned about them, but, uh, we would just, of course, keep a close eye on them. And it is it is part of their physiology to lose this weight because they're, they're you know, fight, breed, repeat, right? Like that's, uh, that's all that's going on. So it's, uh, it's an interesting time. But one of the ways that they attract a female af- after they've fought off the male that mm-hmm. probably she you know makes her start paying attention that he's a tough guy. And then he does a really cool behavior with the nose. So we talked about the nose and its physiology and probably why it evolved to help warm the air uh, coming into the body. But I, I mean, researchers don't know that. Like that's not 100% been proven. So this uh, breeding behavior that they do with their nose, it's where... In order to, I know it's so funny. I'm already laughing because so I'm funny. like kind of doing it myself. But uh, in or in order to attract a female, they shake their nose like left and right, like left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. But because it's so <laughs> gelatinous and squishy and bulbous, it makes this really cool yeah, squishy really, clappy sound, pretty... if you will. I 
It was similar to the, I must admit, it was a similar sound I heard um, af- after I started my postpartum workouts and I was doing jumping jacks. It was kind of what my thighs were doing. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're so tiny. No, so it's tiny. all good. Hey, thigh, there's nothing wrong with a little yeah. thigh clap, Chris. It's, it, means it's, it, means you're, it means you're a woman. It means you're alive. It means you've given birth. It's all good. But anyways, it's this. Yeah. It's, hey, you brought – yeah, two beautiful That's right. World, so, I'll, I'll yeah. take my thigh yeah. claps and be proud. Um, <laughs> and of course, it's only during like a very forceful jumping jack. I'm sure everybody's thighs clap during that. But anyways, yeah. Um, so yeah, and so they make this cool, squishy, clappy sound, and the female tends to pick the male with the squishiest, sloppiest, biggest nose and sound. So yeah, there you I go. Just, <laughs> I gotta write this book. Oh my gosh, I gotta write well, this book. Well, I was I, strategies. Oh, Chris, I, I think we're, I think next Val. We've got like almost a year to prepare. I think next Valentine's Day we should do just um, a Mating hilarious strategies. breeding courtship. <laughs> And then have John do them all for us. Yes, do like yeah. just do like some shorts, like boom, 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 <laughs> or guess the species who does this or whatever. Yes, uh, yes. But yeah, no, and so who knows? That might be part of the reason why their nose has evolved the way it has and gotten bigger and more voluptu- voluptuous and longer, perhaps. <laughs> it's right? Such a big nose. I, well, I mean, we all know. I mean, you're here, the genetics guy. Like, if yeah. you are. You have the bigger nose and you have the squishier, clappier sound <laughs> and you're attracting your more females, right? You breed five instead of one or 10 instead of five because you've got the best yes. sound and the most yes. attract to you, then you pass on more of your genes, genes than right. little, little Mr. Not Squishy Clappy Nose, yeah. right? So size does matter in Saiga. Yeah. The bigger the nose. Nose size. Yes, the nose. The bigger the nose, definitely the better, the more fit you are and more attractive you are in Saiga Antelope. Mm-hmm. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then once that um, squishy, clappy nose did its purpose to attract a female and they breed, a female is going to be pregnant for five months and she'll give and she usually gives birth from anywhere to one to three calves. Uh, triplets are not entirely rare. So mm-hmm, that's pretty mm-hmm, interesting mm-hmm. for an ungulate, I thought. And as you mentioned, uh, the calves are born pretty well developed and they can graze on their own within four to eight days. Uh, so lactation in general lasts about mm-hmm. four months. So, uh, and researchers have reported that Young calf uh, saigas will occasionally nurse from unrelated adults. However, this hasn't been observed in the wild. So they're not really sure if it's just a um, a behavior from living under human care or, once again, I don't know how much research has really been done on their behavior in the wild because a lot of the research efforts in the past have been trying to figure out what's killing them. In the wild. No, and it's, you know, again, good segue into conservation. I mean, they're critically endangered. We talked about the horns being ground up, uh, nothing but fingernails. So, in Angie, in 1900s, in the early 1900s, there was only about a thousand saigas left. So, right, due to over, this was due to overhunting. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so they, they suffer, they're suffering from inbreeding depression. And, and it brought me back to Tassie Devils. So, we have the Tassie Devils with the transmutable cancer. So their genetics are so similar that when we tell their story, it, it makes sense. Like why they could one disease could wipe out the whole thing. Like they could just the, the whole 
population could go with a very bad disease. Now, they did bounce back into the 1960s because there was protections put in place to almost 2 million. Yeah, the USSR did a really nice job to help these guys bounce back into the millions, right? Right, but then the USSR went away and they actually, Russia and some of these other countries encouraged people to hunt them for food because people were hungry. So they they plummeted again to just over 20,000. So you went from 2 million to 20,000, yeah. Uh, well, and I read too, in an, in an effort to reduce rhino punt yes. poaching, they encourage saga yeah. hunting. Yeah. It's like, oh, don't kill them. Kill these things. Which. It's, uh, it's so yeah. stupid. Uh, so today, there's about 125,000 of the, the Russian, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. And then there's only about 5,000 left of the Mongolian saiga. Now, this is the story I wanted to tell today, Angie. So Planet Earth 2, I, I love Planet Earth, uh, all those shows that uh, it's just so beautiful, so beautiful and tell such a good story. So Planet Earth 2 went to go capture these migrations of the Saiga. And I was reading the story. And again, like I said at the beginning. Right. It's supposed to be one of the most brilliant yeah. in the world, yeah. right? So they're going to go catch yeah, it. Yeah, catch it and film it and then show it, you know, people around the world the, the plight of these animals. I can only imagine. I, I don't, uh, I just couldn't imagine seeing what they saw. So I just think it's a story that needs to be told, um, you know. So you know, Angie talking about their these large herds, they get together, hundreds of thousands together to calve at one time, survival, you know, from predators and other things. So in Kazakhstan, in Planet Earth Two is out there filming in 2015. Within a, within a few days, 200,000 Saiga died off. They just watched them drop dead, left and right. Just And then the calves that were born died shortly thereafter, or they got sick and died too. 200,000. That's insane. That is horrible. So in just a couple of days. Oh, I can't even imagine yeah. those poor. Oh, I would just be in tears the whole yeah. time. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't um, I've seen some, I watched some videos on it. I don't recommend it, but, you know, see them suffering. And yeah, I couldn't watch those videos. Do. I was like, yeah. no, uh-uh. Yeah, there's just there's just nothing you can do about it. It's just horrible. So, so I think one of the, the questions, you know, because Angie and I are scientists, is why? Why did this happen? Right. So, so searching for clues. Now, we know, especially Angie knows, you know, pregnancy and ca- calving or giving birth is huge stress, not only psychologically because you don't sleep, as we opened up with <laughs> Bashir's baby, you know, and and seeing how it affects the parents, but. You know, phys- physically, it's rough. It is hard. It is very hard. It is very hard on the on the on the body uh, to do go through that and recover from that. So females could or tend to be prone to disease around that time. You know, and and luckily we have modern medicine and things like that that help humans. But for animals still out in the wild, it's it's a rough time. So like Angie was saying earlier, with the climate change that year, there was just a really incredibly warm summer or spring. And what the scientists have found is that this, there was a normal bacteria in, in their nose and respiratory tract that normally wasn't toxic. But if it becomes in the blood, it can get toxic. And due to these environmental stressors and the stress of giving birth, all of a sudden this bacteria became toxic and just spread like crazy and just, bam, killed off 200,000 in, in, in a blink of an eye, you know, and just dead, dead. So. My thing talking about genetic bottle, bottlenecks, climate change, 
when you have genes that are very similar that resist disease and you have a disease that mutates or changes, you can wipe out a whole species. Gone. Gone. And I think that's why this this species, a lot of people, a lot of scientists are interested in. They want to save them, but they want to study them too and, and hopefully prevent something like this happening again. Yeah. I, I When it first happened, it was so shocking and horrific. And just they have, I mean, like you said, you saw the videos, just, it was just horrific. And so kudos to the scientists uh, internationally um, and conservationists that worked day and night to try to figure this out. And at first they thought maybe an environmental toxin or some even joked around and said maybe an alien because it was just, I mean, that's how like powerful and awful it was all at once. They didn't even think that they- And sudden. Yeah, and sudden that they sudden. didn't even think that there was yeah. like a known, you know, bacteria virus that could do this. And that, so they went right to environmental toxin, but that was soon shortly ruled out. And so to then find out that it was a common bacteria that lives in their nose, uh, it's Pasteurella multocida, multocida, mm-hmm. um, or Pasteurellosis, it's often called, uh, that that bacteria got into their blood system and became toxic, like leaked toxins inside their blood, and then, of course, killed them very shortly thereafter was shocking. And that's where the story of kind of climate change comes into as far as if animals are forced to either migrate to less tolerable or harsher conditions than they should be in uh, because of either fences, and then you throw in climate change on top of that with the earth warming up, it's going to make changes that we can't even predict. How about that? Like uh, this, this would be one of them. Researchers did not see this coming; couldn't have predicted this. No that way. It would be a bacteria that commonly lives healthy and typically normal for tens of thousands of years in their nose. And obviously, there's probably since their nose is big, there's probably a lot of this bacteria. Yeah, yeah. Um, just kidding. I don't know that for sure. But so it just. So there's a two it's a two pronged story. There's a story about like Chris mentioned genetic bottleneck and how a disease can come in and wipe them them off, you know, wipe out a species because of their their um, similar genetics and their uh, lack of or disadvantage of fighting off different mm-hmm. diseases. So there's that aspect, but then there's this aspect too of well, they shouldn't have having. I mean, this shouldn't have happened, uh, and it only happened because the weather was so hot that year or this is what researchers think at this point in time. And well, and I think you got to add in, I mean, it's not just, you know, does this happen? Did this happen 10,000 years ago? Probably not. I mean, you have a, a species that, you know, genetically are sisters and brothers, not, you know, distant cousins. Like we all are like, we're all distant cousins. Yes. Well, and that's in late 2016, so move forward after the population started to rebound, is a large loss happened in Mm -hmm. Mongolia, and that disease was confirmed to be goat plague in early 2017. So probably, I'm, I don't, without having the article in front of me, but I'm speculating that that's, uh, was probably from a domestic animal, something like that, because now we have a lot of domestic livestock crossing paths with these wild animals, and that's another issue we haven't touched Mm -mm, too much on, mm -mm. but 
uh, in future pods, we will definitely we have more time. So, but what's hopeful, Chris, is that in all of these, so we had, you know, in the 1920s from millions to hundreds and then 1950 millions down, 1988, over 400,000 uh, were killed, mm-hmm. two thirds of the population. Um, and then, and then, and then the population rebounded mostly. And then we had this 2015 uh, pastor die off. Uh, what's hopeful is that because of their, probably their breeding courtship behavior with that squishy clappy nose and a male breeding lots of multiple females and then females giving birth, uh, one to three calves per year. And then having this herd mentality to protect their calves from wolves and other animals is their population bounces mm-hmm. back more than most species. I feel like we've Very covered true. on Very this true. podcast. So that to me is really hopeful and especially with some of the new protections and people being becoming more aware of the Saiga. And of course, as our, our followers, our podcast fans pass this around. So people now know what the Saiga is and show pictures of it and get your friends excited. So, it is hopeful that I think if uh, you know if we can help them out a little bit here and there with either not putting up fences and this climate change thing. I mean, not only do we need to do it for the saiga, but we need to do it yep. for yep. Mm, pretty much every other species on the planet, including ourselves. <laughs> so hopefully there'll be some some reductions in what we're doing right now with um, our carbon footprints and we shall see stay tuned obviously so who's out there fighting for the saiga i know i saw a few oh yes well like all the scientists and researchers out there they're dedicate dedicating their time and energy to work figure out these massive die-offs and to help uh, put solutions in place to potentially prevent them but the uh, organization of the week that i really want to give a sh- shout out to is the saiga conservation alliance and that's S-A-I-G-A. That's how you mm-hmm. spell Saiga, even though we're it's the A is silent. Uh, and they can be found at Saiga, S-A-I-G-A, dash conservation.org, or of course on Facebook. And they are committed to restoring the Saiga antelope to its position as a flagship species in Central Asia. And of course on the steppes. And they have several projects that are involved in researching the saiga and using as education as a tool um, in the local communities where the saiga range. And a lot of it is awareness too, just by engaging people and locals about celebrating the saiga and learning more about why it's such an important part of their culture and where it lives and encouraging people to want to keep it around instead of hunting it and things like that. So it's really, and as we talk about in this podcast a lot is bringing a multitude of talent together from not just educators or researchers or conservationists, but getting NGOs on board and the government and the veterinarian staff, of course, to help diagnose some of these issues, these diseases that they're having. Um, the Saiga Conservation Alliance has done all of that, and they do it well. They love these guys, and they've been working hard for a long time, and they have a brilliant board and team to try to help save this animal in years to come. So 
like them on Facebook. Definitely. Check definitely. them out. Tell your friends about them. Um, yeah, and we pre- we thank you. I'm. I, I it makes me happy to. Know, it makes me happy to know that people out there are working really, really hard. They're conservation heroes, and they deserve. I. Sh- I mean, if I want to shake my nose and clap for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so conservation tips of the week, Angie. So really, I got thinking about grass and grasslands, and so I'm like, okay, I try to find something that that kind of correlates with that and here in the states and in other parts of the world people like to have nice lawns now if you want to be environmental friendly you should plant like local plants things like that but most people don't so you want a nice lawn so here's some things you can do to, to maintain a nice lawn that helps conserve you know water and some other things one of the things they talk about is to feed your lawn a couple times per year, help uh, cut, you know, keep down the, the weeds that can grow and it helps provide nutrients to the grass. One of the things that I, you know, used to always do is, is I used to cut my lawn too short. You want to set your mower at, at a, a nice height. So you want the grass three to four inches. You don't want to shave it down because that harms the, the grass and you'll get some of those brown spots, then you're watering more, things like that. You don't want to do that. You know, do you want to keep it at a, at, a, at a little bit taller height because it helps cool the soil and preserves moisture in the soil? So that's kind of, you think of water conservation. One of the things they recommend is leave the grass clippings on, on your lawn. That's actually natural fertilizer. It breaks down pretty quick and helps fertilize your, your lawn. If it rains, do not water your lawn. Okay, shut it off or whatever. Rain is a in Florida, we got plenty of rain this summer. You don't need to be out there watering your lawn on days that it rains. And some things that, that they're doing now, Angie, this is really cool, is, is smart watering devices. So they can actually, whenever you're, it can detect in the soil when the moisture is low, and then it will turn on the sprinklers at a set time. I know we say always to, to water in the evening hours when the sun's gone down. So again, not only preserving grass, but preserving water. That's kind of the, uh, the bottom line with it. So Anyways, oh, wow, just a impactful conservation story. This is one we got to keep our eyes on. Um, I know we've got some things in the works, you know, to get back to conservation news and things like that. So I think we need to, to keep, keep, you know, our, uh, our finger on the pulse of this species because it's just we've so... We've got to keep the saiga alive yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, wanna, I, I want my children to be able to go see one of these great migrations with me someday yeah it'd be amazing it'd be amazing all right good pot Ange. we will see you next week another species yes awesome thank you and i'm so glad we got to do the saiga today and i'll look forward to next time thanks for listening everyone listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com